CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, Gen C. Some big news, a couple things to talk about. One, we have an amazing guest. This is going to be a, an episode completely focused on the media industry. So I'm super excited to talk with you, Avery, about just what's happening in the media ecosystem. I know we both think about that a lot. Second of all, just want to give a shout out to our multimedia team. Our first episode of Gen C on YouTube is now live. Uh, we'll put that link in the, in the show notes, but please go on over there. I always have that moment of like, that's what I look like. So uh, now you all can have that same moment with me. Of course, Avery looks fantastic, but I'm excited to see how people respond to the video version of Gen C. So check it out at Coindesk on YouTube. Avery, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm in uh, Vader LA office today, which is exciting. There's a really nice buzz here. I feel like the back to office is actually happening in LA, maybe more so than New York. Um, so it's exciting. How are you, Sam? What are you up to? I'm good. Um, I agree. You know... I am so overdue to go out to LA. So I appreciate uh, you bringing a little of it to us uh, with that amazing oil painting behind you. Again, go to YouTube, check it out. And your turtleneck, you're like Steve Jobsing right now, which I really appreciate. All right, for our intro, Avery, I only have one story I want to talk with you about. I think it's a story that's like been dominating of the podcast world and the media world right now. But there is this significant doom narrative happening around the world of media, right? So... Just this week, like TechCrunch is doing a ton of layoffs, Business Insider, Forbes, Time, Jezebel went out of business about two months ago, Pitchfork and Sports Illustrated, all the drama happening at the LA Times. And I thought it'd be interesting for you and I just to have a conversation of what we think is causing this, because I actually think it's completely rooted in just business models. And I also think it's completely rooted in the changing nature of advertising. So, you know, one, I just like, what's your thought on media as a whole, as, a, as someone who is placing a lot of media, you're designing around media, you are doing a lot of your own media creation, but the media industry, like what's the, the first, like the 10,000 foot view from Avery's perspective? The 10,000 foot view is people in every generation feel like the media industry is screwed, right? Like if we looked, if we had this podcast 10 years ago, they'd be like, oh my God. And then these people are starting to go on their phones and then they're on the computer all day. And like, yeah, like that, that's true. So I think this is a perennial discussion is point one. Point two, though, is like there are very real material um, business model changes that are happening right in front of our eyes. And I think that it, people have known this is happening for a while. And it's kind of like a melting ice cube because there was so much legitimacy in some of these publisher names and publication names. And they have really strong brands behind them, too. 
people want to be named in Forbes. They want to see their name in headlines. They want to, you know, they understand the legitimacy of these publications for sure. The media landscape has gotten so super fragmented that like going publisher by publisher and doing a deal with each sort of major name is really hard now because there are just so many of them. And the reach compared to social just absolutely it pales, right? Like you just don't have anywhere near as many eyeballs as you do on a viral TikTok. And like, that's the reality. If you're trying to sell, I don't know, I'm sitting right here and there's vitamins. You're trying to sell vitamins. Like you need to reach like a lot of people. And of course, quality matters. Audience matters. What do they read? Are they considering it more because they saw this? But, and, and there's, you know, a number of different sort of considerations, but I think the business model of publisher direct buys ha- is very challenged because of how fragmented the industry is. Not to say it's completely gone away. It still exists. A lot of it's programmatic, of course. Now, a lot of the more custom pieces are a place where brands are spending even more time of really doing something that's deeply embedded and really thoughtful, whether it's a host-read podcast or like an advertorial or branded content pieces, et cetera. And then the bigger issue is is really the consumer attention and like do consumers spend enough time reading. Clearly, they didn't spend enough time reading Pitchfork. And clearly, Pitchfork wasn't able to adapt to the changing nature of how people consume on social media. And, you know, the sort of intertwining of these two things is publishers can't charge as much for doing like branded posts than they can for, you know, doing it in the articles and doing it in the ad spot. Because like the premium, for some reason, just doesn't really equate to to brands like, oh, I could just buy this on my own meta and not have to pay you guys a 7x premium. And I get that argument because efficiency matters. And a lot of our clients, um, Vayner does over, you know, this billions of dollars of media spend per year. And our clients are charging us with, hey, I want efficiency and they want effectiveness and they want people, you know, to do media that actually works. But they're measuring um, in a variety of ways, but often based on media mix models that really reward low cost reach. So I think all these things are coming together to be uh, a challenging time for the publisher direct industry. With that being said, because you know I'm an optimist, I think niche publications that have a really clear perspective are doing great. We're both friends with the Blockworks guys, and they were telling me that their advertising inventory always sells out because, like, they don't have much of it. It's scarce. They can charge a premium. And that sort of scarcity, I do think, really works. And really owning a niche. So I know oftentimes when we're going after specific audience groups, like, okay, great. This publisher is perfect for this thing. And like, we got to hit them. That's that's the go-to, that those premium buys still are happening. Um, I think publishers are being more and more creative with like, the variety of their formats, whether it's conferences or custom content or all these things that are really better advertising than just a banner ad. So the silver lining. I think there's a lot of stuff that you said there that I want to respond to. I also think like, just to frame it for our audience, you know, the old media model, and I'm not, I'm thinking pre-internet, you know, but you, like, whether you're the New York Times or like the Village Voice in New York City, you are primarily supported by classifieds, right? Which now is Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist and all the other things that took, took that job. You were supported by large, big display advertising, full page ads, all that kind of stuff. People aren't reading print anymore. And there was never a marketplace where I could say, oh, let me bid for the lowest price full page ad, you know, the way programmatic does. So the whole model completely changed. And back in the day, if you were, whether you were a TV channel or you were focused on, on, on print journalism, you were making 80% of your money net on your advertising. Like that's how you paid for everything. So I think like looking through that, then you get the internet changes all, all of that in, you know, in a, not a short amount of time, but a relatively short in the history of media amount of time. I also think then you combine the idea 
of the programmatic ad business, which I think is, you know, I look and I still see programmatic ads on the front page of the New York Times.com, Wall Street Journal.com. You know, the premier news organizations of the world are getting programmatic. And to me, that is, that was a clear sign. I remember, I think I tweeted about this about a year ago. I was like, this is a, a death knell <laughs> when it comes to only ad supported businesses, that that is a, a giant challenge. But I also think there's something else to talk about, which is how much brands in the last few years, and again, you guys are on the top of this, so I want to get your thoughts on it, but how much brands can now own their relationship directly with consumers because of things like TikTok and Instagram. And if I was going to invest a lot of money, yes, I want to maybe invest in creators who can help, you know, sell for me. I want to invest in my own content because I can be funny, I can be cute, I can be insightful, I can be whatever on these channels, and that can create a brand love. And I don't need the publishers in the way I used to. You know, I think like you said something I thought was really just amazing right now, which was they all the brands still want to get covered in the New York Times, right? They want to be mentioned in the business section or in the entertainment section. But how many of those are actually buying advertising in the New York Times? So they're not even supporting the, the place that they want to get covered from an editorial perspective. Or if they are doing it, they're like leaderboard bidding or whatever. And they're like, I'm hoping to get this for a $4 CPM as opposed to a $50 CPM. So I think it's the combination of those things, which is programmatic, which is a race to the bottom. And I think is, you know, you're right. Custom is a way to go and, and, and a way to value. But also the fact that if I have a direct relationship because I have 20 million people who follow me on social channels, that may be all I need to support my business, you know, and, and maybe that's where I should be investing my ad dollars now into the, creati the creativity and the uniqueness of, of a, an owned and operated voice. So what are your thoughts on that? For one, do you work for Gary Vee? Because that is Gary POV by far. It's like brands should build their own. Gary, call me. Should have direct relationships with consumers. And that just wasn't possible before. Like here it's, you know, you're a chip brand. You couldn't do that 20 years ago. And now you can have your own destination. And I think that's such an astute observation, Sam, that I hadn't fully like crystallized. But that makes, I mean, that's exactly what we tell our our partners to do is like to build your own amazing content and not just rent an audience of somebody else. Of course, it's both though. It's like you need to have owned, you need to have earned, you need to have paid, like the whole flywheel works together. But the owned capabilities have significantly improved and it's gotten significantly easier to create a much higher volume of content. It's not just two shoots a year. It's like we create every single day. Exactly. And that's the new model of creation. The programmatic thing, you know, I worked at DoubleClick before. I've long been like programmatic is a death knell for everyone, including themselves um, because of all the hidden margins that go into that. And everyone who really knows how the pipes work is like, this is so screwed. But somehow it just keeps like prevailing. And obviously we should do a whole episode on like the death of cookies because I think that that's actually really interesting too. Just like a melting ice cube. It's just like slowly like dripping mm -hmm. out. But it's a big ice cube. It's more like an iceberg. I've been saying that I think we overinvest in programmatic for the entire time I've been a Vayner. And, you know, ultimately there's a number of reasons, but we have to for, for certain clients and it makes sense in certain cases, but I couldn't agree more with you on these things. But I still am optimistic that creators create mm -hmm. and that a lot of these publishers have so much equity and their brands are worth something. Who knows? There could be, and we've seen a lot in the events and experiences space. I also want to make it clear that I do think podcasts are actually a really smart place to advertise, like genuinely. And like we recommend that to a lot of our partners. I think the right podcast has a niche audience, has a loyal following. We see this work really, really well for some brands that have, have doubled down on podcasting. That's an example of like a new medium that publishers are creating. And who knows? Maybe it could be like publishers make the, this could be Coindesk chips. Who knows? Um, but I legitimately think that licensing out some of the brand IP probably makes a lot of sense to diversify these business models because it just has changed so dramatically. And 
I'm excited to have our next guest on because she works for probably one of the biggest media companies out there. And every single person who's listening to this will be familiar with Fox. They're a behemoth in the TV space, but really in the entire media space. We have Melody Hildebrandt on, who is the CTO of Fox, has had an amazing career and seen the journey of like coming out of engineering and then innovation and spent some time on blockchain and now is working in the, the concept of validating information as just one of the pieces that she oversees with a new product called Verify, um, which is really a tool that is forward thinking to a time when we really have to question how much of the information we're getting is AI versus has an authenticity to it. So I'm really excited to talk with her about that. Um, Avery, thank you so much for this conversation. I think it's just the beginning of, I'm sure, many that we'll have on the topic. But I do think that it's such a big one. And I do think that consumers need to understand also that their media choices actually matter. And so even though, the, you know, the fun game of retweeting and trolling on TikTok or on, on Twitter and like how much you are engaging with the brands you love, it doesn't have to be monetary support. But like, I think that we need to recognize that entities that are doing the work of journalism, of media creation, of entertainment also need to be recognized and supported in some way or another. With that, quick break. We'll be back with Melody Hildebrandt, CTO of Fox, for an amazing conversation in our all-media episode. We'll see you soon. Consensus 2024. Global crypto regulation, the disruptive power of AI, the rise of tokenization. Consensus is the one event where experts convene to talk about the ideas shaping our digital future. Join developers, investors, founders, brands, policymakers, and plenty more in Austin, Texas, from May 29th through the 31st. The 10th annual consensus is curated by Coindesk to feature the industry's most sought-after speakers and provide unparalleled networking opportunities and unforgettable experiences. Take 15% off registration with the code GENC15. Register now at consensus.coindesk.com, and I'll see you there. Melody, welcome to Generation C. We are thrilled to have you here. You've been on our guest wish list for quite some time. And when I saw um, the recent news that we're going to jump into, I was like, the time is now to get Mel on the pod. So thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Big uh, fan of yours. And glad to be here. For those who do not have the pleasure of knowing a lot of your amazing work, can you tell us a little bit about Melody, a little bit about your role, a little bit about sort of like what got you to where you are today? I'm the chief technology officer at Fox Corporation. So we're the parent company to brands you might know, Fox Sports, Fox News, Fox Entertainment, Fox Television Stations, 2B Media Group. Um, Woo, 2B. Woo. (laughs) And a hot brand right now. And uh, yeah, so as a CTO, I stepped into the CTO role a few months ago. Uh, I was previously our chief security officer and head of engineering. But now it's, you know, my mandate's really about thinking through Fox's technology strategy, how we think we can flourish in the next wave of, you know, media evolution, which obviously it's been kind of a wild time to be in media, also a wild time to be in technology and to be at the intersection of both is actually quite a privilege and pretty exciting. So yeah, that's what I'm focused on today. Like history, I was a Defense Department war gamer, uh, you know, and found my way to media, which has been a, you know, a fun transition. Really enjoying what I'm up to. And I'm sure we're here to talk a little bit about some of our most recent announcements. Absolutely. Millie, uh, thank you again for for coming and nice to meet you. I'm interested in the idea of digital experiences evolving really quickly. Um, you were involved with Blockchain Creative Labs, which was a kind of really uh, amazing sort of think tank of what you, you guys could do with these new emerging technologies within Fox. Now you're CTO. 
Avery and I talk a ton about also like how AI and truth and validation and all this stuff like comes to be. And you, you seem to be on the forefront of a lot of these shifts. So I guess one of my questions is just like, what excites you? What do you look at to get inspired? How do you focus on the fast shifting nature of the media ecosystem in your role as CTO? I say now, I mean, I've been seven years at Fox. Today is like, the, the, it, it feels different, right? In terms of just the, the required rate of learning is just much higher. I've been consuming myself so much more, like the amount of time I spend on YouTube, like doing online courses, things that I really hadn't done in my role as CTO, engineering. I think part of that is that in this, particularly with AI now, people are building so much and a lot of it in the open. Um, and there's just a lot of sharing that's happening. It's a, it, I contrasted a little bit with like when I was running streaming infrastructure and that was exciting and technically interesting, but there was much less of a like ecosystem around it or a sense of people in the public talking about the innovation um, than there is today. And with blockchain, that was it was similar, right? With, with people building a Web3, I mean, that was all about building in the open and being transparent about what you're doing. So I find it to be a very exciting time to be a technologist uh, because of the amount of sharing that's happening across the ecosystem. Like my rate of learning is just so high. Like I'm, I'm having to learn a ton to personally keep up and then to feel like I can actually be an effective steward of our technology strategy and make the right bets, you know, in partnership with the business. And again, I've never had such like inbound from the business wanting to talk about technology. There is just such a sense of possibility, creative possibility, like efficiency possibility, and also real problems to solve around, you know, authenticity of information, you know, from a news organization. And so there, there's a problem space, there's a huge opportunity space. And so, you know, I, I feel like I'm I'm to really learn a lot and, you know, tap into like all these open resources to really stay relevant and like up to speed. And so we can make those right calculated bets. I love that you just sort of got into how much time you personally spend learning. Because I think there's this misconception that as you become an executive, you become a C-suite at a Fortune 500 company, you're just managing and getting memos sent to you. You just talked about like going doing e-learning courses on YouTube and spending a lot of your personal time consuming information to keep up with what's happening and being an effective steward of technology for your organization. So I think that's such an important point to double down on is the lifelong learner um, requirement of being an executive who's plugged in and tapped in and understands what's happening. And, um, you know, I first became aware of a lot of the great work you were doing through BCL and through your forays into the Web3 world, where I think Fox did a lot of really impressive work. I'm curious, because you mentioned that as well, you you mentioned Web3 and sort of building an open. What attracted you to that space and, and kind of what are your feelings um, about it as we sit here today in Jan 2024? Yeah, I mean, I was drawn like just philosophically into the space. I think like into crypto, into the idea, some of the, the promises, the idealism of the new internet, which I personally I found quite appealing, just a, a sense of ownership, new, new paradigms for ownership, less centralization among key power brokers that none of us really elected um, or would choose today to be the arbiters of where traffic goes and where money centralizes and consolidates. So I think it was like this kind of philosophical thing I found very appealing. And then from an opportunity set why I could actually do this in my job and not just for fun um, was the sense of like, what is the future of content financing and distribution? And that was kind of our BCL's mandate, forge the future of content financing and distribution. So we really wanted to think creatively about how we get our content to consumers. And Fox was very, um, I think, you know, we zigged a little bit when others zagged around streaming. 
And we made a conscious decision you know, not to launch a Fox Plus, right? Which at the time was considered, I would say almost Luddite. There was a sense of, you know, Fox doesn't get it. Everyone's going to streaming. I think everyone looks at that now as like a genius move, right? Like we, we maintain so much more flexibility on distribution where now you see the handcuffs that a lot of very successful big media companies have, but they've, they're handcuffed in terms of where they can distribute their content. They have to put it on their streaming services. And we can be much more of a mercenary about that. And so, and really think about the different consumers that we have across news and sports, entertainment, Tubi, and think about really delivering awesome experiences to each of them in different ways. And, you know, that's part of the UCL mandate. Um, you know, the financing thing obviously got tricky for macro reasons, but the distribution part, like, still feels so true. And it informs so much of what we're doing today in AI as well. Melody, I don't know if you saw, but this past week, Sydney Sweeney's Twitter account was hacked. She was shilling crypto. Avery and I, our good friend, Keith Grossman, he had his account hacked. One of the areas that you oversee is the security side as well as a CTO. And I just like want to know, just like be straight, like how freaked out should we be? Our digital health, our privacy, it only feels like this thing is being gamified more and more. Is this something that like keeps you up at night? Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons to be scared. And some things are getting worse. I mean, deep fakes are getting really good. Social engineering is getting much more sophisticated with voice cloning, digital doubles, and the attackers are crafty people um, who are constantly, you know, adopting new techniques. Some of it's like how we inform our own security posture, but it's also what I think the ecosystem needs to do more broadly, which is that we really just need more secure by default configurations of products. I mean, I think it's ridiculous to push these challenges into the hands of average consumers on a day-to-day basis to navigate. I feel that way as to the Fox employee base. Like I said from the beginning, I don't think it should be a frontline help desk worker or video editor's job to think every day about if I make a wrong click, am I going to cost the company millions of dollars in lost revenue? That is not what these people should be thinking about on a day-to-day basis, right? And it, it just crowds out creativity. So, so much of like the Fox perspective has been how do we actually like create a secure by design infrastructure so that a single click of an employee who's not from the security team and isn't expected to be an expert doesn't cause the downfall of the company, right? That's kind of what in industry, you know, kind of an annoying parlance is called zero trust. So I feel like companies have really begun to adopt this and I reject so much of the security ecosystem of humans are the weakest link, right? It's like, it's not their jobs. So it's our job to configure things so that they don't have to be as worried about that. So then that's kind of an employee view. And then I think so much that extends to the consumer ecosystem. I do think it's ridiculous that the platforms aren't doing more to stop some of this. And I think they can. And some of that is pushing more secure by default configurations into um, you know actual tools like defaulting on things like multi-factor authentication, you know, checking for like known reuse of passwords so people can't just have their accounts taken over through password spray attacks. You know, there's basics, absolute basics. I think the platforms and core technology companies have so much more work to do to embed that by default so that consumers can be safe. Yeah, I was just like sort of processing everything Mel just said because that was a lot of like really (laughs) important information and something that I think so many of our listeners are thinking about too. It's like we can't put this on like in the employee handbook, page 78, like it says don't do this. But like they're like, that was on page 78. Like, come on, man, I'm just trying to make ads. Um, Anyway. Uh, I want to shift our focus to Verify, which is, of course, your open source protocol for verifying media. It's got a ton of love in the press, a lot of sort of people excited about what you're building. 
How did this sort of come about? What are the problems that this solves? And how does it actually work? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the the kind words about it. I think we were excited to actually release, release a solution to what we perceived as a broad problem, right? And there's a, obviously it's so much in the news around the, the debate around how large language models are trained on content, how they surface content through like rag style mechanisms as well, like on a, on a more uh, real-time basis and how those underlying content producers are compensated. I think all of us, you know, who work in the broader media ecosystem and whether, whether that means like in a major tech company or a major media company, or you're at a, you know, you're a single creator who has a Substack, right? And it takes money to produce content, right? And so I think it's become an increasingly apparent challenge that we, we want to incentivize quality content production. But then also a lot of us who are you know, in technology are super excited at, about what's happening in AI as well. And so we'd also don't want to regulate this thing into the ground or shut off our content from being part of these new ecosystems. Mm-hmm. That's another approach, right? There's a problem set here. And what we saw as the approaches that were being taken by the industry, we thought were very extreme. You, know, you have on the one hand, like blocking content, blocking robust.txt. That obviously didn't work. And I was like, all right, well, we're going to sue, you know, the providers. We'll see how that plays out in court. That'd be quite interesting to track. Then you see these kind of all-you-can-eat deals where for us, we're like, first of all, the deals that I think have been broadly reported are not, um, you know, super generous, let's say. <laughs> so, you know, they undervalues the content. And it's also such early days that you don't want to give up your entire treasure, you know, today for a flat right? It's just, it's too early. So we kind of saw that the existing approaches, which are more, much more like legalistic, were not sufficient. And, you know, we've been working in, as you know, like on these Web3 protocols on distribution through different uh, and more granular patterns, you know, encoding some of the more complex deal structures via smart contract, you know, thinking about being able to implement these kinds of deals like at scale with many distribution partners via code, and we just had this kind of aha moment, you know, that we could actually release a technical solution to bridge the gap between content creators and large language models or AI companies more broadly through a way that could enforce certain guardrails that matter. And we wanted to be really part of defining a solution. And we also wanted to actually define a little bit of the architecture. I, I think that's from like looking back at like previous great innovations that initially seemed great for news media, like social media, which really didn't turn out to be great um, for a lot of news media organizations. And part of that, I think, was this whole architecture was imposed upon the content creators and then could be changed at will, right? And so we're like, actually, we need to come to the table with a bit of an architecture ourselves. So that was the impetus. And in terms of how it works, I mean, like there's like kind of three main components of the protocol. Like the first is, you know, what is the metadata standard that essentially can register in a test content product? So we want, we think there should be a standard and the whole reason to open source this, right, is to gain adoption by other media companies. We're having great conversations about that. The second piece is what we call the content graph. Again, this is one of some of the crypto primitives actually really come in handy to kind of represent these kind of nested components of the protocol. So in the case of news media, for example, like it really matters an image in the context of the article and the headline, like those things need to be connected. And when, you know, content goes into the sausage factory that is, you know, uh, training a model or something, obviously they get decomposed, but you as a viewer, I think you need to, if you see an image that doesn't have a, uh, like a caption or doesn't have the headline of the story, there's so much opportunity for misleading. And so we thought the content graph, which is a smart contract, is like that way to like 
irrevocably connect those components to each other. And then the final piece is, is an identity registry. And that's essentially where a content production arm, you know, in this case, we're signing content on behalf of Fox News, Fox Sports, 18 different television station units. We have like, you know, 20 wallets, let's say we're operating just within the Fox ecosystem, but where that kind of signing key pair exists between the producer of that content and the real world identity of that institution. So those are kind of the key components of the protocol. And this has been released initially, like, you know, we kind of open sourced our GitHub. We'll be releasing the SDK next week to make it even easier to onboard. Wow. That's like a huge thing. Yeah. Pretty excited about that. And then the other big thing is to migrate to an app chain, which is really for us to, right now, as you noted, we're on Polygon and we were glad to have that relationship with Polygon. We had been doing so much experimentation in other related blockchain areas, but because we really understood that technology, it was kind of a natural choice for us to have a low cost mechanism for signing, but we need to go even cheaper. And so the app chain is going to allow us to just drive down the cost of sign to effectively zero. You know, it's interesting. We did an experiment for a while where we were sort of doing a loyalty reward system for people who read articles on Coindesk. And the idea was we wanted to say, hey, our most loyal readers should get more rewards, whether it's coming to our conference or invites to special conversations, whatever it may be. And we designed it on a layer two. And we found at our scale, and your scale is much larger than, than Coindesk, but at our scale, even the, the cost, even on a low, low cost chain was just too much to bear from a media organization that has, you know, often thin margins. So um, that's really interesting to say. It's almost like your proof of concept, your MVP is on an existing chain. And then how do we keep getting and refining that down and, and you know, deeper and deeper? Yeah, Moose signed about 130,000 pieces of content right now. And I would consider the cost to be considered like de minimis. And that's in the current structure, right? Uh, but we realized I run an R&D team. We can make those kinds of initial investments. So again, that for me, is quite low. But we really want to drive it to zero because effectively zero because the, we, we, the adoption is the most important thing for us. Absolutely. So going on to adoption and frankly, even referring back to how you were talking about the sort of technical nature of security and how most people also don't really do that work and we, we shouldn't put it on them to do the work. I guess I think a lot about how do we get consumers to want verified content, not even for today. I'm thinking two years from now when like we really have to question almost everything we see to see whether or not someone is actually trying to game us. And when you guys released Verify, I remember I went and I found a, a sort of random photo from an article. I kind of went into an archive and I, pu I put it in the tool and it was able to source right back to the original. And I was like, oh, so I can actually say that this is a verified piece of media that you guys put out, which then made me think of all the folks during the beginnings of the Israel Hamas situation where people were like taking literally output from video games and calling that as live coverage and like gaming the anger algorithm, if you will, that happens on a lot of the social pl platforms. But I also think people love, unfortunately, the idea that they can react and they control and they can retweet and they could comment and because it helps them generate engagement. So I sort of do wonder, because I've, I've spoken to multiple people in the media about this idea and how much both, if engagement is the metric, how much do people actually like, you know, they would never say it out loud, but like the fact that they can be spicy and it gets a lot of engagement, even if it may be an AI generated image or... Sam, are you saying sensationalism matters in getting attention and eyeballs? <laughs> <laughs> I am saying that, but what I'm saying more is that I don't necessarily have enough faith in the average person to do the pull mechanism of tell me this is verified versus the push mechanism of 
this has been checked and we know this is real and how much more that might help us feel better about the news actually to know that there is a someone putting a stamp on it. And I guess, so what, what, what's your sense of the audience trust and, and their desire to want verified information? I think you're spot on. There's kind of two ways I think about this. One is, I don't think it's reasonable to expect the average consumer every time they see an image to go and verify if it's true. However, most consumers are receiving their content through some intermediary that they have some amount of trust in. And I think that there is, a, I hope that track records begin to matter more in like an age of disinformation. And that doesn't have to just mean like a, a big legacy media company like Fox obviously has a newsroom of hundreds of people whose teams of fact checkers, et cetera. It's even for, you know, those influencers on TikTok who's sharing stuff with their followers or with, you know, their audience. Right now, there's no consequence to sharing misinformation. So someone who shares, I saw exactly what you saw, Sam, like we saw this happen ourselves. Actually, this is one of the best demos I have of Verify is in real life is to show a Twitter photo from a blue checkmark guy, which again, may not mean too much now, but, you know, has 1.6 million followers, Shane, breaking Fox News confirms and has an image of a rocket. And I reverse image search that predates verify because the photo is actually from 2018. So this is an example of where the content graph actually comes in useful. There's a real photo. It actually wasn't an AI doctored photo even. It was just used completely out of context. And then he was piggybacking off of the brand saying, oh, Fox News is reporting this to get people. And it had over a million views, right, of this false piece of content that's completely misleading. So I think for this guy, Mario, he, like, there should be consequences that. And right now there's no consequence because there's no mechanisms, no track record of, like, having shared this information, right? But now there's really no excuse. So so my hope is that at least like the, in the same way that we expect like our newsrooms to be obviously verifying content before they publish it on their sites, the broader ecosystem of people who are sharing news now actually have the tools, potentially this is one tool, you know, I think there'll be more to identify, you know, does this actually come from a source that we can trust that, you know, did the work to validate it because not everyone can have a you know, fact checking unit. So you have to draft off, a, consumers ha are going to draft off a little bit of either a media company, the creators that they trust, the aggregators they trust, the Substack writers. I think all that ecosystem should flourish, right? But there are intermediaries generally of information, even if they're decentralized. And, and so we want, I, I think it's quite reasonable to expect that those intermediaries have a bar now to clear, which is to validate before they say something was broken news by Fox to validate that this image actually is true and really came from us. So that's the kind of like bottoms up part. And then there's the question of, well, can we actually push this a little bit more into the ecosystem? One idea, like when we open source this, I talked, I was starting to talk to some developers who like are in this space, generally interested in the misinformation space, disinformation, AI generated media. Like the first idea that came up was like, oh, well, I could just code a browser plugin against the protocol so that now if images are found on the protocol, there's a star or whatever the UI is, right? And that, I was like, oh, it's a cool idea, you know, because that's one reason I think we're hoping for the open source to not an idea I came up with that, that the ecosystem can come up with. And obviously integration to the major social media companies would be the best. Um, but I think even some of like the earlier, more decentralized emergent, let's say social media companies are the most interested now, right? Because it's like, it's a way for them to kind of from the beginning encode some of these principles around trust into the platforms. So I'm bullish on that. It's last pretty early days in exploration. I also think this is a hot take, but anyone named Mario is probably a troll. 
So we're just going to start there. Sorry, Mario Lopez, but just calling you like it is. I think that's great. And Avery, I know you have thoughts on this too, but like, I think we're in this moment where we're going to look back at some point and say, one, just like climate change, we had a moment where we could have done something and, and only certain people did like what you guys are working on. But also there's, there's a real race to the bottom, which is happening very quickly, I think, on the uh, on the both the information, but even the quality of the imagery. And I, I keep wondering, and, and will we continue to value and almost overly value that which we can verify and that which we know was touched by human hands? I feel like we have somewhat of, uh, you know, differing viewpoints here. And I honestly think that it just has to, we have to see this play out and we have to see what resonates with consumers. Because at the end of the day, consumers come first. Then there's advertisers and there's legislation and there's, of course, company, media companies, all those. But like the consumer attention is that is the arbiter of like what is good content and what people, you know, want to watch and are going to watch are going to engage with. Um, so that's always my like thinking on it. Sam, of course, is like the most ethically standard person is like we have to you know push what is good. And that is true. But even to what you were mentioning earlier, Mel, people have so much choice now. Like what even what is good content? What is a good ad? Like, is that up to us, the critics of culture, or is that up to consumers and where they choose to spend their time and attention? I think that's always something that we're grappling with. You're always up on the cusp of technology and what's coming new and next. You just mentioned some of the investments that you're making on your team through R&D. What do you think is like the next big thing that people aren't seeing, aren't thinking about yet? One thing I'm just really excited about that I've already, I'm already seeing the seeds of this, I think is with AI tooling that's emerging now, it's really democratizing creativity in this wild way. I mean, and I just see it even in practice on my team. We obviously, we work in a media company. There's like a bar, a certain bar for like basically all the, everything we produce. There's used to be like, all right, we have to go to, oh, it's like our graphics person's really good at that. Like, let's go to her and she can build something amazing and bring it back. Or, oh, like this person, you know, is amazing with words and like, let's have him do like a whole pass on like the narrative and bring it back. And I think obviously there still is like massive room for um, specialization and expertise and excellence on these on these topics. But it also allows you to go zero to one so much faster yourself and not be reliant on other people. And I'm not a visually skilled person per se in visual arts, but I can just do so much more myself and not in a great way, but like enough to move the ball forward to, to like just pressure test an idea. Um, and I think we're seeing that across the board. And we're in a fundamentally creative enterprise here. And just the, and the number of inbounds I get from the business now. I mean, it's like really what a time to be alive in technology. It's just so cool. It's like there's so much interest. The creative community is like hungry for these capabilities. They see how it can help them become more self-sufficient, take ideas like further before they really need to bring in real experts to help them. So I think, I think they're like the optimistic view is just like this wild explosion of creativity and the, the, the ability for small teams to do a lot more. That's what, that's like the optimist case, uh, I guess, which I'm excited about. Let's be optimists. Glass half full. <laughs> so Melody, first of all, thank you for spending so much time with us. I mean, my, my final question for you is really about, yes, I think AI is bringing so much creativity and so much opportunity and the production cycles are so much quicker and all of this stuff I think is, is, is a net positive for the world. I'm personally pretty excited with even just the way that like I'm able to supercharge my own career in being able to use these tools. I'm also still nervous about the the idea that like we've had Photoshop and Illustrator filters forever, but yet only a certain number of people know how to use that well. You know, like the promise of creativity, like I feel like Apple did us a real disservice at one point by telling all of us we were going to be creators. 
And then the fact is like most are not good at it. And so how do you look at the fact that you guys are a news organization that has millions and millions of people trusting you to deliver information? You have folks who are, you know, gravitating more towards opinion. And then you have now this AI challenge that, again, we're all dealing with. I guess, what's your interpretation of, do you think that AI will help from a putting your news hat on, right? Is AI going to be a benefit to the news industry in the way that myself and Avery are getting our information in the future? Or do you think, again, that like people are going to really gravitate towards trusted voices who are giving more of the interpretive, the translation, the the guide, if you will, to how we should be thinking? Because I think the normal person wants a little bit of that. I completely agree. And we we completely agree, I think, as a news professional group generally. I mean, there's more ways this goes very wrong than ways it goes well. I think I think you're probably right. Like, and we've seen some of these examples that, you know, of I think organizations who jumped in way too aggressively and misled their audience. And then Gabriel, you're totally right. Like it starts with the consumer. When you trick your consumer and pretend that this is written by Susie from Oklahoma when that is entirely an AI-generated persona, you've lost the plot, I think, right? So I think it, it, it is about the trust that you have with consumers. We've built that trust up over decades of delivery. We're not going to squander that through techno-utopianism, right? I'm obviously I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. And there, there's ways this could go wrong and become quite dystopian, I think. And, uh, and I think you see the estimates, like the future internet in 10 years is going to be, I mean, the math here gets... Um, made up, but it's like 80% of content will be AI generated, 90% of content, right? So you're in these, this this world where you, I think you're right that people are going to gravitate towards, I think what brands are going to be more important than ever. And that doesn't mean with like legacy brands, it could be individuals, right? Who've built up credibility and a track record, but trust with cons- from consumers, that brand in the most expansive sense is going to matter more than ever in the age of AI. So then the question for an organization that wants to maintain its brand extend its brand, build on that, I think, is how do you bring these kinds of tools in to the enterprise to really kind of supercharge productivity, enhance those workflows, but kind of keep that, the brand center at all times and not do anything to squander that. So that's the, I think that's, that's the yes, but part to my optimism, which you're right to call out because yeah, there's, it requires, I think, a being careful and respecting your consumers. What a note to end on. Be careful and respect your consumers. Melody, thank you so much for joining us today on Gen C, for sharing your insights, for sharing how Fox is thinking about this ever-evolving technology space and a lot of the really important initiatives that you and your teams are, are helping to lead the industry on. So huge thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope to see Coindesk on Verify in the future. Uh, we'll could talk about that we're, later. We're looking at it. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Melody. always hard to pick favorite episodes, but I think this is one of my favorite episodes. Mel absolutely shared a different perspective that I think we've heard uh, from a few of our recent guests. So it was a banger in my opinion. What do you think, Sam? I love that conversation. I love that we have an entire episode focused on really the changing nature of media. So that was like a perfect denouement of it. I'm excited to... One, just like hear more about what they're up to. Like she is so smart and I love that they have such a dynamic person in the role of CTO now. I think that was like, like the trajectory there is super cool. And I also think like the, just the question of consumers wanting better information, there is so much going wrong in that space right now that I think that like it actually is seeding opportunity for folks like Fox that actually know how to do their job really well 
But I also liked her comment on some brands rushed in too quickly. I keep thinking about like when I tried the AI generated like flavor of Coca-Cola and I was like, this maybe is a flavor that AI didn't need to create. So like, I love the experimentation, but I'm like the execution, maybe this what didn't, didn't need to come to market. But um, yeah, so anyway, I just, I really like that. And thank you for helping me set that up. Yeah, absolutely. I think it brought up a ton of great points and I feel you on the brands who rushed into doing these like AI executions. That's also some of the, the fun of experimentation is seeing like what works, what doesn't, what scales, what maybe you should need to think about a little bit more strategically before it goes live. Absolutely. All right, Avery, let's wrap it up. You want to take this one? Gen Z, we will see y'all next week. As always, let Sam and I know what you like, what you want to hear more of, what you didn't like. It's awesome to see our numbers growing on this podcast, which means the Gen Z community is strong. We're now going to be on video as well. So hit us up and I hope y'all have the best week ever. See you next time. Peace.